The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Twenty years ago this fall, I spent a semester in Israel, and I went there praying that God would make me a man after his heart. And that shaped the backdrop to my interest in this text in 2001. It was the first paper I ever presented at ETS. And this is kind of a uh, renewal of that paper with a brand new thesis. What does it mean that the Lord sought for himself a man according to his heart? A key and familiar clause in 1 Samuel 13, 14 reads, Bekesh Yahweh Loish Kilvavo. In a recent JBL article, Benjamin Johnson provided a strong literary contextual defense for the traditional view that these words explicitly describe, and I quote, something about the heart of Yahweh's chosen agent who will replace Saul. David is a man after Yahweh's own heart, end quote. Whether pointing to the king-elect's inward makeup, motives, or God-dependence on the one hand, or his covenant loyalty on the other, this view consistently treats the idiomatic prepositional phrase, kilvavo, like or according to his heart, adjectivally, modifying the object ish, a man, and the 3ms pronominal suffix in kilvavo as having its antecedent in Yahweh. The whole, therefore, is seen to point to the royal substitute's like-mindedness to God, which stands in contrast to Saul's tendency toward disobedience. Yahweh has sought for himself a man whose heart or will is like or in accord with Yahweh's heart or will. In distinction, the view that Johnson argues against has been present at least since the late 1800s and was made popular in recent days by P. Kyle McCarter. Here, kilvavo is still commonly rendered adjectivally with its suffix referring to Yahweh, but now the idiom clarifies not the king-elect's character, that the king-elect's character reflects God's character, but that the royal, royal replacement stands in alignment with God's elective purpose. MacArthur's translation, Yahweh has sought for himself a man of his choosing. In MacArthur's words, ish kilvavo in 1 Samuel 13, 14 and I quote, has nothing to do with any font, great fondness of Yahweh's for David or any special quality of David, but instead emphasizes the free divine selection of the heir to the throne, end quote. V. Phillips Long has postulated a middle position that Johnson himself fails to highlight. Long suggests that Kilvavo, while primarily focusing on divine choice, may also connote the covenant loyalty of the coming king. In support, he observes that implicit in the selection of a vassal is an expectation that the new appointee will act in harmony with the suzerain's will and purpose, that is, in accord with his heart, end quote. To this I add that even if MacArthur and others are correct that Kilvavo in 1 Samuel 13, 14 explicitly tags the man as chosen by God, the mere contrast with Saul's disobedience in the passage seems to imply that something about the king's replacement influenced Yahweh's action. Such a link is made explicit in both 1 Samuel 15.28 and 16.7. In 15.28, Samuel reinforces to Saul that God is replacing him. Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor better than you. Then in 16.7, the narrator clearly identifies David's heart as aligning with Yahweh's royal selection process. Do not look to his appearance or to the height of his stature, for I have rejected him. For the man looks to the eyes, but Yahweh looks to the heart. 
So in table one that you have on your handout, I present the various many ways the English versions treat 1 Samuel 13.14. While commentators are split regarding the interpretation of the prepositional phrase kilvavo in 1 Samuel 13.14, most appear to agree on two points, whether consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or unintentionally. One, the prepositional phrase functions adjectivally, modifying the object ish, man. And two, the subject Yahweh stands as the antecedent to the three MS pronominal suffix on kilvavo. The former conviction almost certainly necessitates the latter, for in an adjectival reading, having the three MS suffix refer to the man would only be stating the obvious. Moreover, doing so would fail to provide the necessary contrast to Saul's disobedience. Context demands that something is being said of the king-elect in 1314 that cannot be said of Saul. And certainly one could say of Saul that he was like or according to his own heart. Raising fresh lexical, syntactic, comparative, and textual questions, the present study investigates anew the meaning of kilvavo in 1 Samuel 13.14. The argument will include four overlapping elements, not all of which I'll be able to address in this presentation. First, I'll affirm with McCarter and others that the prepositional idiom points most explicitly to Yahweh's choice of the king-elect rather than to the successor's makeup or loyalty. However, two, I will argue for the likelihood that the phrase kilvavo itself is best rendered adverbially, modifying not the object ish, but the main verb bekesh, he sought, Read this way, Kilvavo is shown to express the manner or standard by which Yahweh pursued a new king. Namely, he did so according to his own heart or choice. Three, I will also consider the specific antecedent to the three MS pronominal suffix on Kilvavo. For the adverbial rendering creates two potential readings. If the suffix refers back to Yahweh, then the adverbial interpretation would suggest that God's own discretion guided his selection of a king. Yahweh has sought for himself according to his own will or choosing a man. However, if the suffix refers instead to its nearest nominal, ish, then a quality in or of Saul's successor becomes the explicit standard that guided Yahweh's quest. Yahweh has sought for himself according to the man's heart, a man. Figure 1 that you have on your handout shows the primary syntactical possibilities for reading Bekesh Yahweh Lo Ish Kilvavo in 1 Samuel 13.14 based on whether the prepositional phrase Kilvavo modifies the object Ish or the verb Bekesh and whether the 3MS suffix finds its antecedent in Yahweh or man. The fourth goal of this paper after arguing for the likelihood of the adverbial rendering and for Yahweh being the antecedent of the 3MS suffix I will wrestle in the conclusion with whether Yahweh's showing discretion and seeking one man in contrast to others necessitates that there is something about the king-elect that matches the royal image God had in mind. That is, even with an adverbial reading of Kilvavo that takes Yahweh as the antecedent of the three MS suffix, 1 Samuel 13, 14 may in fact both align with the numerous texts that emphasize David's special divine election in contrast to Saul's and anticipate those that stress David's greater like-mindedness to Yahweh when compared to Saul. So I begin with my reassessment of Kilvavo. Syntactic and semantic considerations. Four points are noteworthy with reference to syntactic and semantic matters. First, Ronald Williams lists Kilvavo in 1 Samuel 13.14 as one of his examples of kaf of norm, according to. And both of his other examples include adverbial uses, 2 Kings 11.14 and Psalm 51.3. 
Some other par- parallel texts buttress this approach to 1 Samuel 13:14. Perhaps unwittingly in support of his own conviction that 1 Samuel 13:14 asserts the freedom of the divine will in choosing a new king, MacArthur compares the semantic meaning of kilvavo with that of the prepositional phrase in Psalm 20, verse 5, Yetain lake kilvavecha. May he grant to you according to your heart or desire. Significantly, the prepositional idiom in this structurally parallel text functions adverbially, clarifying the norm that was to guide God's provision. With a more direct contextual parallel of our passage, a number of commentators who agree with MacArthur on 1 Samuel 13:14, like Ralph Klein and Robert Gordon, liken the text to 2 Samuel 21, where we read, Asitha eth kol hagadolah hazot. And according to your own heart, you have brought all this greatness. For our purposes, the wording in 2 Samuel 7.21 is significant for a number of reasons. A, the prepositional phrase is unambiguously adverbial, so that God acts specifically in accord with his heart. B, the 2MS pronominal suffix in the prepositional phrase unquestionably refers to Yahweh. It's his heart, not David's, that is in the four. C, the reference to Yahweh's heart is one of only four or five mentioned in the Deuteronomistic history and one of only two or three in Samuel, depending on whether 13.14 refers to Yahweh's heart. D, like 1 Samuel 13.14, the verse is focused on David's kingship. David declares to the Lord, For the sake of your word and according to your heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. By all this greatness, David refers to Yahweh's gracious dynastic blessing, which was granted in accordance with God's will, purpose, or pleasure. Now, if this unambiguous adverbial use of kaf plus lev is seen to clarify the ambiguous use of kaf plus levav in 1 Samuel 13, 14, then a parallel is created. Just as Yahweh sought, according to his own will, a replacement for Saul, so he promised, according to his own will, a perpetual dynasty to David. This parallel supports reading Kilvavo in 1 Samuel 13, 14 adverbially and reading Yahweh as the antecedent to the 3MS pronominal suffix. Now I'm going to hop over two texts that MacArthur also points to, 1 Samuel 14, 7, Jeremiah 3, 15, um, but I think both of them are quite ambiguous uh, regarding semantic considerations. Uh, is it an adverbial, the prepositional phrase adverbial or adjectival? And I I don't think either one is too decisive in helping us um, in this instance. Second, while Benjamin Johnson and others are correct that the content of 1 Samuel 2.35, the next text we want to focus on, that the content could be understood to support the traditional understanding of 13.14, this first of three potential references in Samuel to Yahweh's heart most likely supports, I believe, the adverbial rendering of Kilvavo and Yahweh as the antecedent of the three MS suffix. The similarities between this passage, the passages are clear. Just as Samuel declared to Saul, Yahweh has sought for himself a man according to his heart, so also Yahweh declared to Eli through the man of God, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is within my heart and within my soul. 
Johnson and others infer that the explicit stress on doing, along with the occurrence of bait plus levav in 2.35, necessitates that Kilvavo in 13.14 also focuses on the doing of Saul's replacement. That is, he is like-minded to the Lord and lives accordingly, the traditional adjectival rendering. A number of observations, however, suggest a different conclusion. A. The passages are distinct in their use of prepositions with levav, whereas 1 Samuel 2.35 links the preposition kaf plus the relative with the preposition bait plus levav, and 13.14, sorry, 13.14 has only kaf plus levav. The preposition bait is clearly used spatially in 2.35, marking a location within the area of God's will and clarifying the what of the relative a share. That which is done is according to what is within God's heart and soul. In contrast, the preposition kaf is never used spatially, and in 13.14 it is either expressing a relationship of correspondence or identity between the heart or choice of God and the man, the adjectival view, or it's emphasizing agreement in kind, manner, or norm between God's heart and his action or man's heart and God's action, one of the adverbial possibilities. B. No ambiguity exists in the function of cashier in 1 Samuel 2.35. It is clearly modifying the verb asa, to do. That is to say, in 2.35, the prepositional phrase beginning with ka functions adverbially, just as was the case in 2 Samuel 7.21, already noted. From the perspective of syntax, then, the use of kaf and its object in 1 Samuel 2.35 can only be seen to support the adverbial reading of kilvavo in 13.14. C. In 1 Samuel 2.35, the faithful priest is the implied subject of the main verb, asa, but Yahweh is the principal actor in 13.14. So whereas in 2.35, the anticipated priest operates according to what is in Yahweh's heart, it is God's doing rather than man's doing that's in the fore in 13.14. Nevertheless, the way in which Yahweh's heart is portrayed as the standard in 2.35 supports the view that Yahweh's heart, not man's, is addressed in 13.14. All these observations suggest that Yahweh is indeed the antecedent to the three MS pronominal suffix in Kilvavo, on Kilvavo in 1 Samuel 13.14, and the phrase itself is functioning adverbially, describing the standard by which the Lord acted. He sought Saul's replacement in accordance with his own will and choice. Third, if the narrator in 1 Samuel 13.14 had an intended Kilvavo to be descriptive of the man in the way that Johnson and other traditional view advocates attest, would he not have said a man whose heart is like his heart? Isha Sher Lo Lev Kilvavo. Rather than just a man according to his heart. Notice how passages with similar constructions and lexemes are shaped. 2 Samuel 17.10 And he, even a valiant one, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely melt. Ezekiel 28, 2 and verse 6, both of them. And you set your heart like the heart of a god. Now, certainly we could have an instance of ellipsis here. Kaf can occur in pregnant constructions like this. However, in view of the filled out patterns elsewhere, both inside and outside of Samuel, one may legitimately question why the full construction was not included in 1 Samuel 13, 14, if the traditional adjectival view was intended. Fourth. We must consider the work of Ernst Yenny, who in his 1994 monograph, De Proposition Kaf, analyzes all 3,038 occurrences of the preposition Kaf in the Old Testament. 
A key purpose of his study was to determine the meaning of the relation between the noun that the preposition governs and the clause in which the prepositional phrase appears. In the Hebrew Bible, he finds nine main categories of usage, each with its own subcategories. He places kilvavo in 1 Samuel 13, 14 under the general category of realization, mental anticipation, in which a comparison is made between reality and a mental image of that reality. Yeni states, and I quote, With the collective concept mental image, we think of various mental and intellectual activities that in a certain way picture external reality, particularly the activities of perception, subjective judgment, and willing. So the formula that Yeni uses to describe this category is X is or acts as XY imagined or conceived. Placing the various constituents of our clause into this formula results in the following statement. Yahweh acts as he conceived, or, more particularly, Yahweh sought a man in accordance with his act of willing. Clearly, Yeni is rendering kilvavo adverbially and treating Yahweh as the antecedent to the three MS pronominal suffix. Now, Yeni places our passage in the subcategory, action according to discretion. Here, the preposition kaf manifests in clauses that show how one's willing or intention is fulfilled. So, for example, in Genesis 19.8, do to them as is good in your eyes. That is, act towards them as you think best. There's 26 instances of this use in the Old Testament, five of which have God as the subject. The primary fulfillment verb is as. The primary fulfillment verb um, asa is asa, but other verbs are also used. And in my paper, I have a table that breaks those various uses down. In each of the instances, the prepositional idioms of willing are syntactically linked to their fulfillment verbs. Specifically, Yeni correlates the prepositional phrase kilvavo in 1 Samuel 13, 14 with the fulfillment verb bekesh, to seek. Yahweh had an image of a new king, and in alignment with that act of discretion, that is, according to his own will, he sought out Saul's replacement. If Yeni's categorization is correct, there's no question that Kilvavo is functioning adverbially in 1 Samuel 13, 14. The intimate connection between the prepositional idioms of willing, here Kilvavo, and the various fulfillment verbs, here Bekesh, necessitates this conclusion. It also requires that the phrase itself designate God's heart and not that of Saul's replacement. In summary... The closest parallel text, both semantically and syntactically, suggests that 1 Samuel 13.14 should be read adverbially with kilvavo clarifying the standard by which Yahweh sought Saul's successor and with a 3MS suffix highlighting that Yahweh's own heart guided his selection process. These conclusions are further supported by Yeni's study of the preposition kaf, which treats the choice of the new king as the outward realization of God, God's previous act of mental discretion. Now I have an extended section on ancient Near Eastern parallels, which I'm going to pass over quickly, but I included the bulk of them on your handout. And what you'll notice is that all of them use the heart idiom with respect to a god or a king choosing another king, be him a vassal um, or a, a suzerain, the god appointing a suzerain. All of them use the heart idiom with respect to election rather than with respect to like-mindedness. Next, I have another section on David's election in context. And my point here is simply to say that the mention in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that the people wanted a king like all the nations 
calls us to read all of Samuel in light of Deuteronomy 17, where we are specifically told that God, that the, the king that Israel could have in the land had to be chosen by God. And so one thing that Johnson suggests is that when we come to 1 Samuel 13, 14, there's no reason we should be expecting a comment about election in the context. And I say, for the first instance of God's king, the one that he has in mind, we would certainly expect an echo of chosenness, that 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 would be there because we're expecting a link to establish him in accordance with Deuteronomy 17. So now with that, I go into my conclusion and implications. First, my synthesis, which will draw together the two sections I jumped over. This interpretation of 1 Samuel 13, 14 depends on properly grasping the meaning of the prepositional phrase, kill vavo, like or according to his heart. This paper has identified three overlapping issues that establish one's conclusions. First, does the prepositional phrase function adjectivally, modifying the noun ish, man, or adverbially modifying the verb bekesh, seek? Two, is the antecedent of the three MS pronominal suffix on kilvavo the object ish of the subject Yahweh? Three, does the context of royal selection suggest that the heart language refers more to character or election? The traditional interpretation of the verse reads kilvavo adjectivally, sees Yahweh as the antecedent of the three MS suffix, and views the unit ish kilvavo to express the man's like mindedness to God. Now, there is little question, I believe, that this reading makes solid sense within the narrative framework of the book. As Benjamin Johnson concludes from explicit texts like 1 Samuel 16, 7 that highlight David's inner quality in contrast to his brothers and ultimately Saul, it is a key thematic interest in the narrative of 1 Samuel, says Johnson, that Yahweh's chosen agents have a right heart, and it appears that there is something about David's heart that makes him an ideal candidate to function as Yahweh's chosen one, end quote. Now, the present study added justification to the view that Yahweh's heart and not the man's is explicitly referred to in Kilvavo, the 3MS suffix. Numerous biblical parallels support this, support this contention, as well as many comparative texts outside the Bible wherein, it is a king's select, wherein a king's selection is linked to the heart or will of a superior. The same support texts, however, strongly affirm MacArthur's assertion that Kilvavo refers most directly to the divine choice of Saul's successor, that is according to God's choosing, and not to the king's like-mindedness to God. In contrast to MacArthur, however, the corresponding text also suggests that Kilvavo be read adverbially, clarifying the standard or norm by which Yahweh sought a royal replacement. He did so in accordance with his own will or choice. The adverbial view easily allows Kilvavo to provide the expected allusion to Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, fits conceptionally with the other ancient Near Eastern data, and aligns perfectly with Ernst Yeni's observation that the prepositional idioms of willing, here Kilvavo, have a close syntactic link to their respective fulfillment verbs, here Bekesh. As such, 1 Samuel 13, 14 is best understood to explicitly declare that Yahweh's hunt for a new king was directly guided by his desire or inclination. The verse tells us nothing explicit about the inward makeup or loyalty of Saul's successor. We know only that God's mental act of, act of discretion, levav, regarding Israel's soon-to-be fa- king found outward expression when Yahweh sought Saul's replacement. Realization, mental anticipation in 1 Samuel 13, 14. I now recall V. Phillips Long's suggestion that while 1 Samuel 13, 14 denotes the king-elect as one divinely chosen, it also connotes the royal successor was in some way superior to Saul. 
Ernst Yenny's classif- classified our passage under the main category, realization, mental anticipation, and the subcategory, action according to discretion. And he used the formula, X is or acts as XY imagined or conceived. Now, when the various constituents of 1 Samuel 13, 14 are plugged in, the result we get is this. Yahweh has sought, in accordance with his previous act of willing, a man. Yahweh's choice, that is the mental image, anticipated his following action, that is the realization, with direct reference to Saul's replacement. But now, two possibilities of interpretation rise to the surface. On the one hand, if Yahweh's subjective judgment or willing expressed by Levav in 1 Samuel 13, 14 points, to a partic- points in particular to a choice of David in contrast to all others, then the action of seeking a man that follows is a direct fulfillment of the previous choice. On the other hand, if the mental image expressed by Levav is more general and simply an expression of a royal ideal rather than of David in particular, then the seeking of a royal replacement may be a further act of discretion by which Yahweh declared that David, in contrast to others, matched the ideal picture of a king that God had in mind. The meaning associated with the latter adverbial rendering would therefore allow 1 Samuel 13.14 to remain parallel to texts like 15.28, which identify Saul's replacement as better than you, and 16.7, which elevates David over his brothers by stressing how man looks to the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks to the heart. The first option reads 1 Samuel 13.14 only as a reference to the new king's election, with no implicit allusion, implicit allusion to David's superior qualifications to those of Saul. In contrast, while affirming the adverbial rendering of Kilvavo and seeing an allusion to Deuteronomy 17, the second view also retains many of the strengths of the traditional adjectival interpretation, wherein David is presented as a better candidate for Saul than for kingship than Saul. As noted by MacArthur, Ish Kil, uh, with respect to Ish Kilvavo in 1 Samuel 13, 14, this has nothing to do with any great fondness of Yahweh's for David or any special quality of David, but emphasizes the free divine selection of the heir to the throne, a conclusion that aligns with the first adverbial reading. I agree that the verse speaks principally about the replacement special election, and I recognize that it is only 1 Samuel 15, 28 and 16, 7 that divine discretionary statements are made explicit. As such, 1 Samuel 13, 14 may simply be an intentionally ambiguous text that leaves the reader wondering, well, who is this man? And what does a man that God selects look like? On the other hand, the mental anticipation expressed in Yenny's category of realization, along with the clear readings of 1 Samuel 15, 28 and 16, 7, insinuate that 1 Samuel 13, 14 indeed stresses the similarity between the image of the divine royal ideal and the reality seen in the man, the person David. That is to say, even if Kilvavo in 13.14 describes the standard by which Yahweh sought a king in alignment with his own desire, the meaning conveyed by the adverbial reading likely includes the conceptual realities that that the traditional adjectival reading intends to convey. Yahweh sought a particular man who aligned with the divine picture of human kingship. What was the nature of such a kingship? 
Well, as already noted, through the narrator's inclusion of the people's request for a king to judge them like all the nations in 1 Samuel 8.5, he encouraged readers to interpret the monarchic history through a Deuteronomic lens, specifically the, the description of the royal ideal in Deuteronomy 17.14-20, which itself emphasized the necessity for a king's divine election, verse, uh, verse 15, and this king's covenant faithfulness, verses 16-20. through 20. Both of these elements stand in opposition to the portrait of Saul and are painstakingly realized in the way the narrators of Samuel Kings portrayed David. While it is true that David's sins are not hidden from the reader, oh, here I just say, David, is he really the realization of God's image for an ideal? And I end the paper this way. While it is true that David's sins are not hidden from the reader, He is nevertheless portrayed throughout the Deuteronomistic history as the king that all others were to emulate. One may legitimately wonder, therefore, why a sin like the case of Uriah the Hittite was ever retained in the narrative. Certainly the chronicler felt free to leave it out. Mark Brettler rightly asserts that 2 Samuel 9-20 through was included, that is, this window of David's brokenness and rebellion, It was included to warn all Israel to act properly, reminding them that God takes sin seriously and that sin has consequences, even when it involves the ideal king. Now to this I add that the inclusion of David's sins was likely also intended to show his humanness, to represent him as a model of repentance after sin, and to proclaim the grace of God in restoring him every time he cried out. Indeed, one of the key reasons that David was better was a better king than Saul was because after failure he always sought to reestablish Yahweh's supremacy in his own life. Finally, Along with stressing David's humility before God, the negative elements of David's life were probably retained to emphasize the need for one greater than David, a divine royal son chosen of God whose faithfulness would be complete and whose kingship would never end. When 1 Samuel 13:14 is read typologically in accordance with the pattern of the Bible's own redemptive historical and canonical interpretation, It is Messiah Jesus who becomes the culminating object of Yahweh's royal quest, the ultimate realization of God's ideal for kingship, the truest counterpart to Saul's disobedience, and the definitive hope to which 1 and 2 Samuel points. Thank you. Questions? Of this text. To that I say, Hevel. I missed it. Uh, yeah, I missed it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you said it was in the Evangelical uh, Journal of the Old Testament? Thank you. Um, so this essay is due to come out in Christmas, uh, just after Christmas, in the Bulletin for Biblical Research. Whether I'll be able to get that in there, I don't know. Others, please. Yes. 
they thought you made a fairly compelling case for the most part, but you went really fast, so it's hard for me to grasp. I know, I'm sorry. Uh, it seems to me that when the discussion of table, I believe it was table one, when you were, or no, I'm sorry, uh, table two, when you were discussing uh, the reasons for arguing that Kilovo is uh, uh, modifying God's choice as opposed to the man after his own heart, that you said that uh, if this was intended to be adjectival, why wouldn't he have said it in a different way? Um, I think that uh, you cite the second sign of 1710, Ezekiel 28, 2 and 6 um, to do that. And I guess I'm wondering as, a, as an argument, as a linguistic argument, if that's really compelling. Uh, we say a lot of things. We have, in, in English, all languages are marvelously flexible Certainly. things. And uh, the fact that I would choose to say something in one way, sometimes even using uh, what to a non-native English speaker would appear to be a, a similar structure and even a similar vocabulary in a different context can have a radically different meaning. And there's no rule that compels me to say it in one way or the other. And, and I'm wondering, um, if, is that really a compelling argument? It almost sounds to me like the, the classic argument from silence, which we always have to be very careful mm -hmm. of. You know, you didn't say this, so therefore x must be true, which is a difficult thing to do. Uh, the, the only, that yeah. Supports your argument. Oh, that, that's a helpful statement. Does the uh, statement that there uh, wouldn't we have expected him to fill out the words. Um, certainly, ellipsis is possible. Numerous examples could be brought forth. My point was simply to say that even in the book, there is a comparable statement that is fuller. And um, so the narrator was certainly free to choose to make a full statement, to, to, to fill it out when he wanted to express that it was... Uh, someone's heart was like the heart of another um, or was in accord with the heart of another. Um, so I don't think it's my strongest argument by any means. Um, but I do think it is a legitimate, art, a legitimate question to ask when we see the heart idiom show up in, con in a context of like-mindedness, the three examples that I was able to find, all of them have filled out no ellipses present. And so this would be the example wherein ellipsis is there. It's, not, it's just a heart, a, his, uh, a man according to his heart. And I think the traditional view has to have the sense of a man whose heart was like or according to his heart. And the reason I think that is because kaf, whereas the English word after um, can mean in the pursuit of, the police went after the man. Kaf in nowhere in the Hebrew Bible has that freedom. And when I've presented this, uh, not this paper, to people like those in my Sunday school class. Um, but when I've presented this idea to them, um, the way that they usually express what they think when they're praying, and this is what I was praying 20 years ago, make me a man after your heart, God. I was saying, God, make me a man who's in pursuit of you, who's, who's in, in, a, in, a, in alignment with you. And um, so my encouragement would be, to at the very least not use after, because after is a blurry English preposition, uh, use according to, and there's two examples in the list of translations that actually do that. Um, and then within that context say, okay, this man is according to God's heart. A traditional view, I think what, he's, what it would be saying is that he has 
something about the man is like God's heart. That is, the man's heart is like God's heart. That you're, you're forced to put something in there, um, an ellips- that there'd be an ellipsis. And so all I'm, all I'm simply saying is that we do see examples where there's parallel type um, phrases used where no ellipsis is present. And so maybe, maybe it's overstating the case to say, shouldn't we have expected him to fill it out? That may be overstating the case. My point was mostly to say um, we see examples even within Samuel, an example within Samuel and two others outside that are very comparable to the traditional reading of 1 Samuel 13, 14, but they're not, ellip- they, they're not elliptical. Um, so that was it. Yeah. It's in a footnote, but maybe I should have put it in the body. Thank you. Just a quick observation, though, that in English idiom, after is restricted to a pursuit kind of a thing. It's not at all restricted to it. It's just often analogy. It's it's often in being used in exactly in exactly the same way that um, like or in accordance to is. No question. but it's blurry, and, and using the word like or in accordance with is not as blurry in English. Yes? I, I must say, you made me think of the, of the delightfully ambiguous uh, comments in, in uh, Chronicles 29, where not, several times where uh, the people only bow down to the Lord, but also to the king. And, and the really delectable comment that, that the, the king sat on the throne of the Lord um, I, was, I was just wondering if, if your study at all um, uh, had you run across or, or contemplate some of those verses in First Chronicles 29. I didn't, no. That's fine. Just, um, just wondering because you mentioned that at some points uh, intentional ambiguity. Yes. And boy, if there's ever some intentional ambiguity, uh, sitting on the throne of the Lord is some, is some thick stuff. It's most certainly. One other comment that I... I've, I found no one that has addressed the passage, 1 Samuel 13, 14, and the, the use of the preposition, that has actually commented in a, in a commentary or article distinguishing, is this adverbial or adjectival? But with a very familiar text, that's the exact discussion that's on the table, Leviticus nineteen eighteen. So love your neighbor according to yourself. And if you look it up, scholars are divided as to whether this is Love like you love yourself, your neighbor, or if it's, that's adverbial, or whether it's adjectival, love your neighbor who is like yourself, that is, who's made in the image of God, like you. And adjectival versus adverbial does change the meaning of a massively uh, in important verse, and this too is, a, is one that I think is worth asking the question. In alignment with the image that God had in mind. I yes. My question, Jason, is uh, why do you think it's omitted in 
Yeah, that's a great, great question. Why is this particular issue, um, David's sin with, with Bathsheba, for example, why is it omitted? Um, why does Manasseh not end up as a bad guy in Chronicles, but actually repents and gets brought back from Babylon to rule Judah? Um, why is it that the northern kings are not focused on almost at all? Why is all the attention drawn in Chronicles to Jerusalem and to the line of David? I think it's because this is a book that starts with Adam, ends with uh, Cyrus's decree, which in the book of Isaiah says that's stage one. Stage one of the restoration is get back to the land. Stage two is reconciliation is finally coming. Cyrus is the agent of get back to the land, and the servant is the agent of reconciliation. So Chronicles ends at the end of the canon setting us up for the sequel, saying Cyrus has made the decree, now turn the page and look for the, rec- the, the age of reconciliation, when the servant will arrive. And so the book of Chronicles is, is designed, starting all the way back with um, Adam, who's the, which is the first word of the book, to relook at all of Israel's history, but to do it through a new lens, not focusing on the negative, but heightening the hope, the hope that is focused through the line of David and with the presence of God in Jerusalem. So I think that's, that's part of the reasoning um, that the negative on David, I mean, still his census is highlighted, but it's, as a, it's a means to getting us to substitutionary atonement in the building of the temple. Um, and so I, there's a, a definite difference in the sense as I'm reading Chronicles, and I think that's part of the intention. It's in my appendix of the paper, and you can see it if you turn over the very back last page of there. I comment on both the use in the Targum and in um, Acts 13. And as I look at the text in Acts 13, and as I've interacted with other New Testament guys, just running this by them, um, am I missing anything in the Greek text? It seems to me two things. Um, I can just read it. How much time do I have, bro? Um, Two minutes past. Okay. So, specifically, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. The second phrase is clearly focused on loyalty. And uh, the plural there of thelemata, it only shows up in the plural one other time in the New Testament. In the Targum, it's explicitly uh, a translation focused on the doing of the king. 1 Samuel 13, 14 is focused on covenant loyalty. And I, my interpretation of 1 Samuel 13, 14 opens the door for that to fall within the conceptual framework of the reading. But I think what Paul is doing here is simply um, echoing both the, the Septuagint, um, but I think he's translating on the whim because in the Septuagint you've got anthropos and in the Greek text here in Acts 13, you've got Andra. So I, I think he's just, in his mind, he includes, he changes seeking to finding because it's fulfillment now. It's after the fact. And then he adds identity. Now we know it's David, uh, the son of Jesse. And then I think he's just citing from memory. He adds Andra instead of Anthropos, Katatain Kardion Mu. That's exactly how we see it in the Septuagint. And so I don't see enough here to 
to push me to say, Paul is certainly reading this adjectivally. I think very likely he's interpreting it both, um, he's interpreting it in light of, I think the Targum is already active, the mention of the the covenant loyalty of David, and I think um, he's aware of the Targum, but I don't see enough that tells me he's interpreting the text necessarily to mean it's only the adjectival reading. And so I, I say, I see ambiguity here, I'm not certain. I think he could just be citing the text as it is. And uh, therefore, we're still up, up for grabs with the question. Thank you, friends. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.